When Neil Leifer was 16 years old, he routinely volunteered to wheel war veterans into and out of the old Yankee Stadium before and after New York Giants football games. Once inside the stadium, with what he calls my trusty Yashica Matt camera, Leifer took many of his early sports photos, including being present for one of the most famous football games ever played, the 1958 NFL Championship game between the New York football giants and the Baltimore Colts. Leifer was stationed at the exact right spot and snapped a photograph of Colts fullback Alan Amici tumbling into the end zone for the winning score in sudden death overtime. Leifer wasn't working for a media outlet at the time, but it was one of tens of thousands of photographs he would take over the next 60 years as his legendary career unfolded, first at Sports Illustrated and later with Time Magazine. Born during World War II on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where he honed his photography skills early within the Henry Street settlement, Leifer would become a star staff photographer with Sports Illustrated in his 20s. Leifer covered some of the most famous athletes and sporting events of the 20th century, including 35 of Muhammad Ali's boxing matches. One of the most iconic boxing photos, a flexing, triumphant Ali standing over Sonny Liston, lying on the canvas in Lewiston, Maine during their heavyweight rematch, was taken by Leifer in 1965. His SI colleague, Herb Scharfman, can be seen at the bottom of the photo with an expression that says he missed the money shot. Leifer covered all three Ali Smoke and Joe Frazier fights, as well as Ali's heavyweight title match against George Foreman in Zaire in 1974. Along the way, Leifer's subjects included baseball and NFL stars, Olympic athletes, U.S. presidents, and even the late Cuban communist leader Fidel Castro. In this latest Stories with Street Cred podcast, I talk with Leifer about his life and amazing career, and we discuss his latest book published by Tashin, Leifer, Boxing, 60 Years of Fights and Fighters. I'm pleased to be talking with Neil Leifer, a legendary photographer for Sports Illustrated and then Time Magazine. Uh, he's a legend around the world, and uh, it's a real honor to be talking with him for Stories with Street Cred. I would be remiss, Neil, if I didn't start off by asking how you're doing in this 2020, a challenging year for everybody around the globe, um, and I hope that you're doing well, but how are you holding up in this uh, trying time? Well, you know, it's not been easy because my age, I am, I'm going to be 78 in a couple of weeks. And obviously that is an age that is among the, 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 it's the age group that has to be most careful and most vulnerable to this terrible virus. I've been behaving myself, which has been particularly hard because I don't cook. I've done well, but it's been very difficult. Uh, and, and I, I've got a, I've got a new book coming out that Tashin is publishing of 60 years of my boxing pictures. And I was very, very excited uh, about just book signings and openings. Uh, the book's going to do well, whether we have any of them or not. 
but we were going to have two book signings and openings in, in L.A. and Los Angeles and two in New York and possibly one in London and one in Miami. So that's really it's just been very disappointing because I've been working on this project for so long that this is a it's one of the fun things that happens when you have a good book published. And that's not going to happen. But happily, I'm healthy and that that's more important. Let's talk a, a little bit about that book, Neil, that you mentioned. It's being published by Tashin. And I saw some of the, um, I guess, the uh, galleys of the book, and it looks spectacular. It's called Boxing, and it's the 60 years of your work um, covering so many famous boxing matches. Um, how did the book come together? How did that idea um, first um, evolve? Well, I, you know, I met Benedict Toshin uh, almost, almost 20 years ago now when he was putting together his massive book, uh, Goat. And uh, he used text pieces by all the great writers that wrote about Muhammad. And he went, he went after every picture he could find of Ali. And of course he wanted to have my pictures in the, uh, in the book. And, uh, the book turned out to be quite successful. And, and I am one of the two principal photographers in the book, along with Howard Bingham, who was Ali's best friend and a wonderful photographer from Los Angeles. So when, when that book was published, uh, Benedict and I talked about maybe doing a collection of some of my other photographs. And about 12 years ago, he published my a collection of my baseball pictures. Beautiful. And he publishes these things as limited edition collector's editions. And then if they're successful, expensive collector's editions, and if they're successful, a year later, or 18 months later, usually a year later, he will publish a trade edition, which is very reasonably priced, and they're beautiful books. So we did baseball first. A bit after that, we did football. Then I contributed very, very heavily to a book he did with Norman Mailer's text. And and again, I, Howard Bingham and I were the two principal photographers on the fight in Zaire, just called The Fight. Mm -hmm. Then Sylvester did a book on the Rocky movies with Tashin, and I had done most of the most of the I did the fight sequences for Sly on Rocky two, Rocky three, and I think it's Rocky five or six. I get mixed up with which number, but my pictures are, are very extensively used in those books. And all that time, Benedict and I were talking about doing a collection of my boxing pictures, which certainly is, it's, it, this is going to be my legacy book. It is without question a sport, and my pictures are best known. Uh, my boxing pictures are my best known photographs. So I was thrilled. And, you know, we took it took a lot of time to get it set up because, well, quite frankly, these other books were going to be published first. And Tashin is not a book, a sports book publisher. So he didn't want to have two boxing books out when he did the mailer book. And he had he had a time frame in which that had to be done. And then the uh, Rocky book had to be done. So we took a little bit more time than I like. Uh, but the benefit of it would not only is it a better book because there's been a resurgence in the last couple of years in the heavyweight division. My whole boxing uh, career started even before Ali, you know, when, I mean, I was 16 years old and Johnny Iacona, who later became a, a Sports Illustrated staff photographer and shot a lot of boxing, he and I started taking pictures at the Henry Street Settlement in the Lower East Side when we were 12 years old. 
Well, I was 16 years old when Floyd Patterson fought Ingemar Johansson at Yankee Stadium. We were poor kids. Neither of us had any money, but we scraped up enough to get a $5 seat. In fact, my ticket to that fight is the very first page of the new boxing book. Incredible. We opened. We opened with the ticket. I would saved it. And then the closing page is the credential from the February 22nd uh, uh, Tyson Fury, uh, De- Deontay Wilder 2 fight in Las Vegas this year, in February 22nd of 2020. But anyway, I, I shot uh, that first fight at Yankee Stadium. And I was a boxing fan anyway. My father was a fan. And, you know, so I just, as I started shooting and getting pictures published, a few years later, but all along, boxing was a sport I liked to photograph. And I just kept going. And when I started working for Sports Illustrated, magically along came Muhammad Ali. And nobody could have a better a better guy to make a hero out of you than Ali. He loved every camera. He loved every writer and notepad. He loved every microphone put in front of him. He made heroes out of all of us. And I was lucky enough, I'm a year younger than Ali, but my career and Ali's career pretty well paralleled each other's. I would say all those years he was uh, he was fighting and, and we, we became friends. And I, I shot pictures of Ali right up until just before he passed away. Going and back, I was going to say, going back to not only your childhood and, and your adolescence when you first started to take photographs, how did that all begin? Where did the interest in photography start, Neil? Well, you know, I, I don't know, Christian, if you have kids, if you have young kids, but I do. Any parent, <laughs> any parent realizes the importance of good teachers. Uh, I lived on the Lower East Side in a low-income housing project, and there was a lot of crime, and there was drugs, and, you know, these, these were rough kids, uh, the poor kids. Uh, there used to be a joke down, to, down where I came from that there were two kinds of kids that came out of the Lower East Side. Uh, half of them went up the river to Sing Sing to prison, and the other half became the lawyers that put them there. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but, you know, one of the things that they did on the Lower East Side was they had something that's called settlement houses, like the YMCA. But, I mean, we had the Henry Street Settlement, the Educational Alliance, and the Henry Street Settlement had a wonderful camera club. What they try to do is get kids off the street at night. So, for example, music uh, was one of the big things at the settlement house. Kids could learn. They had pianos. They had violin lessons. There was no nobody where I lived. Not only could they not afford a piano in the lower in, in, in the low income housing projects, but no room in the in the apartment was big enough to put a piano. If a kid wanted to had a pension for music, you could learn to play a piano at the settlement house. You could learn to play a violin. You could learn to dance. Uh, young girls would take up ballet there if they chose to, uh, and they had a camera club. Me. I enjoyed going three nights a week, and despite the fact that I'm certainly not tall, uh, I was a good player, and I loved just going to play basketball for a few hours every, you know, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, maybe. And they had a camera club in the Henry Settlement House, and from that camera club came Johnny Iacona, myself, uh, a guy named Vinny Nafro, who became a very good-look magazine photographer. There were two or three pretty damn successful photographers that came out of programs like that, including Stanley Kubrick and Jerry Schatzberg. Uh, I didn't know either of them, but they 
they also started the same way I did. And so what you did was you went two nights a week to the Hendersheet Settlement House, and we had a Polish lady named Nellie. I don't, I, I couldn't pronounce the last name anyway, but I don't remember it. But <laughs> Nellie, wonderful teachers, and she made photography fun, and it was just a hobby. I mean, you know, a Jewish kid growing up on Lower East Side, my mother and father thought they had a young lawyer or a doctor. Last thing in the world was a photographer. How can you make a living? The photographer. But I got really passionate about it, and, and it ended up being my life's work. Did they provide you with cameras at the settlement? They had to, they had to because yeah. none of us could afford They had <coughs> cameras donated. There was a company called DuJour. I may have, my parents might have gotten me a brownie Hawkeye. I don't remember for sure, but I, I think so. I think they got me a, uh, a brownie Hawkeye at one point. But they'd provide you with quick cameras. And more important, because film was a dollar a roll, maybe a dollar and a half a roll. Uh, film, by the way, that's something you used to put in the camera. Exactly. You didn't see the picture in the back right away. And what happened was uh, they would, uh, among the people that donated, Life Magazine Photo Lab would donate slightly out of date film, which they couldn't give to their star photographers, but were every bit as good as a brand new roll of film you could have bought in any camera store. So they would give you a roll of film. And if, if you're not, I think it was, it was two nights a week. One night would either one group would be in there on Monday and Wednesday. The other group would be Tuesday and Thursday. And what they did was they get, if you didn't have a camera, they gave you a little camera donated by this company called Jure, which no longer exists. And, and they give you a roll of film and you went out and shot, pictures on the weekend you'd go to the bronx zoo or you know or you'd go to you know where you certainly you could shoot a high school baseball or football game if you wanted to whatever you know but you went out and shot a roll of film if your day was tuesday and tuesday you came in and nelly taught you how to develop that roll of film into a roll of negatives and then you would pick the best shot on your roll of negatives and on thursday she taught you how to make prints and both like i say johnny Ancona, who been my closest and best friend for oh wow four years that i can count we met we were about 12 years old so certainly it's well over 60 years what and a, uh what a fascinating time that you're describing and you know one of the little nuggets in that that you mentioned that may be hard for younger generations to understand neil is that cameras used film back for decades before it became digital and you only had a certain amount of exposures on each role. Well, yes. And in sports, that's particularly important to remember. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, you don't want to be when, when, when the big play happens at home plate, you want to be on frame 34, you know, know, on the goal line or when the knockout happens, you know, so you not only had, to be careful what you were shooting, but where you were in the roll. And when I shot boxing, if I was on roll 12 at the end of a round, I changed film because you want to have the full 36 pictures, even though I had an assistant helping me that would, I would exchange cameras. But I changed the roll of film at 12 at 12 into the roll. If there was a timeout in a football game and I was at frame 24, you change film. You don't want to be running out of film when the winning touchdown happens, you know? Absolutely. 
the irony is that Johnny Iacona and I both went to work at Time Inc. He started in the photo lab. John became eventually a Sports Illustrated staff photographer. And basically, we didn't have beats the way you do it in, in a newspaper, where you could be the baseball beat writer or you could be the football beat writer or the basketball. We covered pretty much everything. You know, each photographer covered it a little bit, although some of us favored certain sports and, and tried to get as many football or baseball or basketball or whatever whatever it was you wanted to shoot. But the irony was that I sort of got the boxing thing locked down where I was I was shooting every important fight for Sports Illustrated. And when I left Sports Illustrated to go to Time magazine, Johnny took over where I where I was. So he shot all through all through the uh Mike Tyson years and the Larry Holmes years and you know later on Johnny was Johnny was shooting for Sports Illustrated. So it's quite an irony and he really just retired a couple of years ago he still shoots occasionally but you know it's funny how we both started and as i said this one teacher she just made photography fun and so the hobby got more and more serious and it would have if it's if it simply had been something to occupy my time on monday and wednesday night it would never have turned in you know i probably would have become a doctor or, or a lawyer well, well, thankfully, you uh, chose the path you did, and we have all these wonderful images to still see. And um, I want to start <laughs> with uh, the the 58 NFL championship between the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants. Neil, were you still in a hobby stage at that point, or had you... Uh, Very, uh, yeah. yeah. Very much so, but I was hoping I'd begun to, you know, once you get serious about photography, you become a credit reader. By then, I knew all the photographers that were shooting good pictures, certainly all the sports photographers. I mean, my heroes were Hyde Peskin and John Zimmerman and Marvin Newman and uh, and Mark Kaufman, Sports Illustrated photographers, and Ralph Morse and George Silk. So I, I knew who was shooting what, and I was beginning to think maybe one day I could do that. You know, magazines were in the heyday. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the early 60s but uh but you know i just shot i was a huge sports fan and a uh giants football fan of course and i uh and i like taking pictures and by then i had bought i saved i was delivering sandwiches at the stage delicatessen and doing very well financially and i uh I bought a $75 camera called a Yashica Mat, which is a two and a quarter square camera, not 35 millimeter. And I, uh, I began using that, which I, I like to call it a poor man's Rolleiflex. <laughs> and it, a fixed lens. You couldn't have a telephoto lens. I dreamed of being able to afford a medium telephoto lens. So when the play was at the goal line, as it is in my Amici picture, which I'll talk about, uh, it, you know, if I had the right camera, I would have filled the frame with Amici just bursting into the end zone like most of the professionals did. I didn't have the right lens and camera. I had a camera that was a fixed wide lens, a normal, what we call a normal lens. And so being 10 yards away, I got the entire line at the bottom when Amici scored the winning touchdown. And I'll explain to you how I happened to be there in in, in a second. But, you know, so there's a lot of luck. I think I told you when we talked the first time that I have never met a good photographer who was modest. So for <laughs> photography, uh, luck, you know that they're being serious because there is so much luck in being in the right place at the right time. And then I always say that what separates 
the big boys from the ordinary photographer or the successful photographers is that when you're lucky, you shouldn't miss the Michi touchdown being perfect. But what I discovered, again, I, I, I was making money, enough money to buy my own film now, and enough money. I had a little dark room in my basement. My father had built me. Uh, we had moved from the Laddock houses in, in the Lower East Side to Laurelton, Queens, and my father built the darkroom in my basement. So I, I was a lousy darkroom technician. I never had the patience for that, but I did have a darkroom. And I began shooting pictures and developing my own pictures and trying to make prints. And as I said, I was never very good at it. But uh, I discovered I, I couldn't afford tickets to a Giants football game even then. Yeah, I could have possibly spent whatever money I had for the week on a Giants ticket, but I wasn't about to do that. But I found out every Sunday, I think in those days there used to be six home games, and if you made the made the playoff or whatever the championship game, you would be a seventh or eighth game. But, but at Yankee Stadium, every Sunday when the Giants played, uh, they were the bullpens had ramps. Remember, stadiums in the 50s and 60s were not made to be handicap friendly. It was awful difficult to bring wheelchairs into a stadium. They just weren't built that way. It became the law later on. Today, you have to have ramps. You have to have an ability to get them to an elevator if you're going to take them upstairs. Well, you could get them to an elevator in, in those days, but you had to get them to the elevator, which was not necessarily easy. So what used to happen is every Sunday, there, would, there was an army of veterans hospital. Uh, these would pretty well be Korean War vets and maybe some World War II vets, probably both, World War II vets and Korean war vets uh and in 1958 right from the beginning of the season i discovered that every sunday an hour before the game two uh buses two or three buses would pull up just outside the visiting bullpen in left field at yankee stadium they'd pull up right to the curb and and they would wheel down the ramp the ramps were built so that trucks could bring in the, the things that are necessary uh for the concession stands, for the uh, the, the rest of the food stands in the stadium, uh, to be able to come in and out of the stadium, you could wheel a wheelchair down there, and then they would line the left field wall right out with right out the center field where the monuments were, the three mm -hmm. famous monuments. Sure. They would line that wall with wheelchairs, and every Sunday they would, depending on the weather, they would be anywhere from thirty to fifty. Maybe as many as 50. Could have been a few more. I never, never bothered to count. And they always needed wheeling veterans in. And I would be there with my trusty Yashika mat right as soon as the buses pulled up. And a whole lot of other kids would be there trying to volunteer. And some, some, some adults would be there because it was a great way to get into the game free. What you an entrepreneurial the... uh, mind you had, <laughs> both well, with... You know, you think you know they're called street spots in new york yeah you know so down that out i volunteered the first week and of course i was very different than all the other volunteers for a very simple reason uh you've covered sports enough to probably know there is no worse seat to see the football game from than to be at one end zone on the field yep unless you're a photographer if you so the others that wheeled the chairs in would sneak into the stands, they would disappear into the stands and never they wouldn't be there when the wheelchairs had to be wheeled out. I was thrilled to be right there in the field because when it got down to my end zone, 
I could be 30 feet away. If a pass was caught right in the at the back of the end zone, it was right in front of me. So I not only stayed for the whole game, but I would help them wheel the chairs out. So because of that, every Sunday they they waited for me. I mean, one of, I was one of the regulars that wheeled in in these veterans and uh and of course the new york press photographers were not the friendliest souls in those days uh, they never seen a kid and when i was 16 i probably looked 12 and uh so you couldn't you couldn't get near the bench i wanted to photograph the giants bench except that as the weather got cold they br- they had two huge urns of coffee for the army veterans they would bring in and uh, they were all bundled up in a wheelchair, but they would, you know, they would love to have a cup of coffee to just warm up. And I, uh, I felt sorry because I'm that kind of guy. You know, I felt sorry for the two. We used to call them renter cops, the security guards that watched each sideline the bench. So I would just walk down the sideline with a cup of coffee for one of these security guards. At which point they would look the other way when I took my trusty Ashika mat out from under. And there I was right in front of the Giants bench. Until some of the New York press photographers would spot me and they, they would shoot me back to the, to, you know, to where the veterans were. Right. But I got some pictures of the Giants bench then. And I shot every game that season. And as I said, when Amici scored the touchdown, uh, it was right in front of me. I was 10, year, 10 yards away, literally. And that became my first important picture not immediately but eventually it's in the life of its own on i know you told me neil that you tried to sell those to sports illustrated or did you try to sell the photos to any outlet it's a very funny story my dream was of course to bring it to sports illustrated and i had already been submitting pictures there of crazy things that I shot. Nobody bought anything, and none, none were ever published. But I, I was wasn't giving up. But so when when I I when I got the Amici picture, and I was right in front of Amici when they carried him off the field. You know, they they lifted the fans lifted Amici on the, on their shoulders and carried him off the field uh, the way you used to carry a winning coach off the field. Uh, I thought those pictures could be pretty good for Sports Illustrated. So I went, took the subway back home uh, to Laurelton. I stayed up for a few hours that night developing and then printing the pictures. And I couldn't wait to get into Sports Illustrated at 10 o'clock to now on Monday morning. Of course, I didn't understand that Sports Illustrated closed. That means there was no chance to get anything in after Sunday night. Now, these days they can hold as long as because you, you transmit pictures electronically. In those days, they had to send the pictures out to Chicago, that's printing plant in Chicago. They closed on Sunday night. So when I brought the pictures in Monday morning, I'd missed the deadline by 24 hours, and it was just impossible. So they didn't publish my picture, but a, a magazine called Dell Sports, which used to do previews to the baseball season, the football season, the basketball season, they published the Michi pictures of full page inside cover in the pre-1959 football season. And that was was really a thrill to me. They also did the pic, they also published a picture of Amici on the shoulders of, of the fans. So it never got published in Sports Illustrated until years later, but it was published in Dell Sports. Let's move ahead a few years when you're already at Sports Illustrated. And you mentioned earlier, Neil, that your career and Ali's career sort of started at the same time. Um, but the very famous 
match or rematch between Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston in Lewiston, Maine was in 1965. And you mentioned earlier as well, being at the right place at the right time. And I would think that that's in a very, a very appropriate phrase for this particular match. Um, and I'll let you tell the story about where you were as opposed to one of your colleagues. Well, you bet. Listen, that picture is certainly the picture that I will be remembered by forever, I, I assume. It's not my favorite picture. We'll talk about that in a bit. But it is definitely the picture that people know best of my photographs and my, my work, period, of all the things I've done. That is a single picture that I'll be remembered by. I have no, no doubt about that. Uh, I had covered the first list. In, uh, I was working by then pretty regularly. I, I was very established in Sports Illustrated. In fact, in 1965, I had 15, 15 of my photos photos were used on the covers of the magazine and they only published 51 issues a year in those days it was one was a double issue at the end of the year so 51 issues and of those 51 issues probably 20 20 maybe as many as 30 were paintings paintings or illustrations and i'm, I'm a lousy painter so obviously i wasn't about to get <laughs> one of those i was pretty established one of my covers the year before, in fact, was a cover from the Miami fight the night that Cassius Clay won the title uh, in 1964. I was ringside for Sports Illustrated. So ringside seats are so, there are so few of them. I mean, only the writers from the most important newspapers, the wire services, Associated Press, United Press in those days, certainly the New York Times, uh, the Chicago Tribune, the L.A. Times, uh, uh the Daily News, the big newspapers would have a writer ringside, Red Smith and Dick Young and uh, Jimmy Cannon and Milt Gross. Those were the guys who were ringside. And photographers, very few seats. But Sports Illustrated, because we had a huge circulation by then, we got two ringside seats. And, and where you sit was just, I don't want to say it was a coin to us, whatever. I don't remember if Herbie chose where he wanted to be, but... They, you want to be opposite each other, so hopefully one person is in the lucky seat, one of the two of us. And Herbie was on one side of the ring, and I was right across the ring opposite him. And when Ali knocked down Sonny Liston, uh, as as you see in the picture, Herbie is right between Ali's legs looking up at his rear end. Now, let me tell you about Herb Sharpman, by the way. He took one of the most pictures ever. It's called the Rubber Face, Rocky Marciano bashing Jersey Joe Walcott. But on that night, he had no chance. He was looking up at Ali's butt, and that's the only picture he was going to get. On the other hand, I was directly opposite of Ali, and yeah, when you see the film, I, I, I still marvel at how fast he whipped his hand across, because that's a single shot. I was working with strobe lights, which means that you're not shooting sequence pictures with the 35 millimeter camera, but the quality is, of course, so beautiful because of, it's like a studio picture, like a portrait you do in the studio in terms of the quality of the film I was using and the lightings, lighting setup that I used. But when it happened, Ali fell right, uh, Sonny Liston fell right in the perfect spot of the ring for me, and Ali was right looking at me. The referee didn't get between me and the fighters, which happens sometimes. And bingo, you know, I got I got the picture. And Herbie had to live, Herb Sharpman had to live with that being looking up his bald head and his camera to 
trying to figure out what to shoot, except there wasn't anything to shoot, as I said, except Ali's rear end at that point. And he lived with that the rest of his life. And the funny part about it is years later, also, there's a guy with his mouth open just to, to the right of Herbie's, uh, her, as you're looking at Herbie, he's just to the right. And I always thought the guy was just trying to con me into getting a print because he kept asking me over the years, telling me he was in my picture. Well, it turns out he was telling the truth. The guy with his mouth open was very young Larry Merchant, who was then writing, I think, for the for the Philadelphia Inquirer. What a great and story. Yeah. And later, one of the great boxing uh, commentators for HBO. When you talk about being at the right place at the right time, I, I know you mentioned that it was, you know, a coin toss, you thought, or maybe otherwise. But again, it, it was prestigious seats to be around the apron um, on on matches like that, I can imagine. And they only had a select few, and the fact that Sports Illustrated had two seats uh, is pretty remarkable at that time. Well, so with the Daily News, pretty well, we had we had a circulation of three million a week. It might have already been to three and a half million, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it was important. And when when they couldn't accommodate enough people, they would make it a pool situation. For example, at the fight that is commonly referred to as these as the fight of the century. Uh, Ali Fraser won at Madison Square Garden in 1971. Uh, they had so many requests for photographers that they ended up put, making a, a color pool. It was a black and white pool and a color pool. And I was one of myself and Tony Triolo, Sports Illustrated, ran the color pool. So I was ringside. But, you know, yeah, the seats, you cannot buy those seats. You can't buy the seat that Red Smith or Jimmy Cannon was sitting in, and you, you know, you can't buy the seat that I was in or Herbie was in. But the funny thing is that talk about luck again, because it always sounds like you're modest when you say it, and that's why I prefaced this whole thing about luck by saying I never met a good modest photographer. But the fact of the matter is that uh, you don't have a choice. You don't know where it's going to happen. It happened right, perfectly for me. At Ali Liston too, in Lewiston, Maine, it everything that could have gone wrong. I was Herbie Sharfman when I had a really good night in 1971 when Joe Fraser was fighting Ali, and everything was going really well for me. I got a lot of very good pictures, and many of them were in my boxing book. And then, bang! Joe Fraser throws that great left hook, knocks Ali on his butt. And it happens right in front of Tony Triolo, who is now in the perfect seat. And I couldn't have been in a worse seat. Not only could I not see Fraser's face at all, who was now going to be the champion, but I also had the referee walk in front of me, and he's in half my picture. It's still a good picture. We used it in the book because Ali was wearing he was wearing shoes with tassels on it, red tassels. I remember. So I got Ali. Ali is on his rear end. His legs are up in the air, and the tassels are sort of flying out. But the fact is, it ain't the picture. The picture is the one that Tony Triolo got, which was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I was going to say the other great uh, sartorial uh, nugget from the Ali Fraser fight was Joe's smoking Joe's shorts. They, uh, I recall, were quite flamboyant. <laughs> yeah, the green. Yeah, well, Joe was playing. I mean, Ali was never. In fact, that, that was really you know, Muhammad Ali most of the time. There's a picture in the book that people love, and uh, and it's such a good story because Muhammad Ali, ninety percent of the time, ninety five percent, 
from the time he was just turned pro, uh, he wore a plain terracloth robe with two words on the back. At the beginning, it was Cassius Clay, and then it became Muhammad Ali. He just isn't, he wasn't a flamboyant dresser. He wasn't, a, he just wasn't a flamboyant guy. He was very, very conservative, dress-wise. But when 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 you're Muhammad Ali and it's a two nights before the fight, I think, or three nights before the fight, and you're in the same, you're going to fight in the same hotel in Las Vegas that Elvis Presley is performing in, and the phone rings and they it's Elvis calling Muhammad, and of course they put Elvis through. He was a star in the main ballroom, and Elvis says to Muhammad Ali, he said, "Listen, he said, can you do you have a minute to come up to my suite? I've got something for you," and Ali. Ali, I think Ali was probably happy to be going up there. Anyway, he goes up to meet Elvis, and I wish I was there. It's a picture I never got then. But Elvis opens up uh, a clothing bag that he's got, and he says he's made, he's had personally paid for and had made a robe for Muhammad Ali that is, it looks like something Liberace would have worn. <laughs> I mean, it is that way. Now, I know Muhammad wouldn't be caught dead in that. But the only thing Elvis said is, I hope you'll wear it. He was going to fight Joe Bugner that night. I hope you'll wear the robe Saturday night. What can Ali say? So there's a wonderful picture. In He's getting his, you know, he used to put the gloves on in the ring. Now they put them on in the dressing room. Uh, Fighty came out with his hands taped, and, the, and then Angelo Dundee is putting the gloves on. There's a beautiful picture in the book of Ali in, in the Elvis robe, which is the only time he ever wore it. It is now in the, in the Ali Museum, in the Ali Center in Louisville, Kentucky. But uh, he wasn't flamboyant. He wasn't. Some of these guys had their own thing. You know, Mike Tyson with you know, just the black shorts and, and the towel that he cut and just put his head through, no rope. You know, Ali had a pretty simple... Now, every once in a while, someone gave Ali a robe, like Elvis, and he couldn't say no. So a couple of them were pretty conservative, and I think he probably liked those. Uh, the president of Zaire gave him a robe to wear at the fight, and he wore it. And it actually was quite nice. It, it certainly had it, it certainly had an Afrocentric uh, kind of feel to it and a look to it, and Ali wore that robe. But it was it was quite nice, and but still conservative enough, I think, for him. Uh, the Elvis robe is something he would never... You'd never see Ali in an Elvis robe, believe me. Or, or the robe Elvis gave him. I mean, like I said, it was like one of Elvis's jumpsuits. A Liberace would have been, as I said, very comfortable. <laughs> you alluded earlier to your favorite boxing photograph taken by you, Neil. What is that photograph and why is it your favorite? Well, easy. And that's that's one of my favorite stories, and you know I love to tell it. It is, by the way, I'm sitting in my living room right now. It is on the on the wall. I collect other people's photographs. I collected for years. I swapped photographs with all the great photographers that I admired as I was growing up. The old Life magazine photographers. I mean, uh, Alfred Eisenstadt and Johnny Dominus and uh, Ma and Mark Kaufman and. George Silk, all the great life, uh, Ralph Moore, all the great life photographers. And I have their pictures around my apartment. Most of not most all of them signed to me. Harry Benson's great Beatles picture, uh, the pillow fight picture of Harry Benson's. But uh, I said, so I don't hang my own pictures, with one exception. It is the photograph I took of the overhead I took in the Houston Astrodome in 1966 of Muhammad Ali fighting uh, uh, 
Cleveland Williams. And it's looking straight down on the apron. The ring is surrounded very symmetrical by the press rows on all four sides. And uh, Cleveland Williams is stretched out on his back, looking straight up at the camera. And Ali is at the other side uh, with his arms up in the air, uh, heading for the neutral corner. Well, for two reasons. One, that picture came from my head. Yes, I needed a nice knockdown to make it good. But the fact is, that picture was me and how I thought about how I, how I, I came up with an idea that nobody had done before quite that way. And one of the reasons you, could, you couldn't do it before, because there was never an arena like the Astrodome, where the lights, the ring lights had to be so high so they wouldn't obstruct the view from uh, the upper deck because uh, the lighting fixture was so big. It was a huge fixture done so it could light a convention, it could light a rock and roll concert. Normally, the ring lights are 20 feet over the ring at Madison Square Garden. To this day, they still are. That's 20, maybe 25 feet. Well, no lens would have got the perspective that I got on my Ali Williams picture. So I love the picture. And as opposed to the Ali Liston picture, which... By the way, I'm very proud of it, and believe me, it's 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 been probably the best thing that's ever happened to me in my career, maybe in my life, was getting that Ali Liston picture. But this picture is a better picture, in my opinion, and it's my favorite. And, and, and the simple way I can explain it, and this is really the best way I can explain it, the way you work, and I don't know how you, how you are when you write something, uh, Christian, but the way I do it is every once in a while you hit a Grand Slam home run, you think. You wrote them a great, everything worked in the piece you're writing or everything went right in the photograph I'm taking. And as I said, since we have healthy egos, certainly, you get back and, and you sort of praise yourself to, this is good. Nobody's ever going to get a better one than this. Well, I could take any one of my pictures and say that every time that's happened to me, when I thought I really hit a home run, a grand slam home run, a month or two later, I would see some little tweak I could make that would have made that picture even better. Uh, a year later, I see three. Maybe if I'd come in a little tighter, maybe if I'd framed it slightly different, it would be more more memorable, okay? And I could say that about the Ali Liston picture. I shot it with a wide-angle roller flex. If I'd had the normal roller flex, it would have been even more powerful because it would have filled the frame bigger. Bottom line is, I'm not, I love the Ali Liston picture. This photograph of Cleveland Williams, which is sitting on the wall, and by the way, I hang it diamond shaped. I have a print of it hanging with, with uh, Cleveland Williams at the top. This photograph is the only photograph in my life. I've taken tens of, I don't know how many tens of, probably a couple of hundred thousand pictures over the years. I, this is the only photograph I remember that I ever took where there is not, after all these years, 55 years, I think, since 1966, I can't think of one thing I change. So that's why it's my favorite photograph. There's nothing I would, every time I, I try to find something I could have made, made, done to make it a little better. And that's, by the way, what motivates you the next time you go to the arena, you know, next time you go to do something. If you've taken the best picture of your life, what's there to look forward to? You think maybe I'll get a better picture than of the, uh, the of the fighter taunting his his opponent who stretched out on the canvas. Who knows? Yeah. As good as maybe I can get a better one. This this picture of Cleveland Williams and Ali, I, I, there's nothing I would change. It's perfect. After all these, in my opinion. <laughs> 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 my, my, 
perfect. Hey, I got a great thrill. The next fight, and by the way, there's a, the next fight was uh, Ernie Terrell also in the Astrodome. And we used the picture of the fighters touching gloves as a full page. It actually follows one spread in the book. Well, that night, there were three or four photographers trying to get the camera direct, exactly in the middle for the Williams fight because for the not Cleveland for the uh, Ernie Terrell fight because they had seen my picture of Cleveland Williams and Ali and they thought this we'll, we'll try this now it was very satisfying you talked earlier about how you started uh, your career at the same time roughly as Ali and in my side of the sports journalism world, uh, it's so important to cultivate relationships with the athletes that you cover as best you can um, for the obvious reason of cultivating sources and um, getting information. Uh, it's different for photographers, I would imagine, but you did have a long-standing friendship with Ali. Um, how did that unfold uh, after you first started shooting him at boxing matches, Neil? First, you couldn't be more right about the difference between a writer and a photographer. A writer needs quotes. You have to talk. You don't want to get them in the press conference where every other writer from your co competitive newspapers or magazines has the same quote. You want to, you want to chat up the, the, the subject of your piece if you can. If you can have a drink in the bar after after the game, or if you can uh, if you can have an interview in the in the clubhouse before the game, or whatever, or in the dressing room before the fight, photographers. I have literally, I could tell you right now, I have photographed hundreds and hundreds of athletes who I never so much as had one word. You just don't meet them, you know. If they see when they get to know you, because they see you around the batting cage at at. at Yankee Stadium or wherever, Dodger Stadium, wherever I was shooting, every once in a while someone would say, hi, I was a redhead, hi, red, you know? But I, <laughs> for the people I worked with, I never had a conversation. And quite honestly, uh, and, and then when I began, sorry, when I began getting cover assignments, portrait cover, cover assignments where you had to pose somebody, that made it necessary for you to obviously to deal face to face with the athlete you were photographing but even then with the exception of someone like ali who always you know always seemed to say i've got i've got 15 minutes and an hour later he was still suggesting new poses you know <laughs> if you had 15 minutes or 10 minutes you focused on taking pictures you didn't get a chance to chat him up i never had a cup of coffee or uh, Ali doesn't drink. In particular, I, I don't know if he drank before he was a Muslim, but I never, I never had a cup of coffee or a drink, and not even not a Coca Cola with Muhammad Ali. But I started getting assignments, cover assignments, where I had to pose him. So Ali knew who I was, and I mean, by the by the time Ali retired, well, certainly before he passed away, I had I had photographed thirty five of his fights, including. All three Norton fights, all three Fraser fights. I was in Manila. I, I, I was on the ring apron in Manila. I was on the ring apron at Zaire when he fought. Uh, I, you know, I'd spent a lot of time around Ali, but I had never 
I couldn't say this is my friend Muhammad. He knew by then he knew who I was. He also was very aware Ali had Ali was just the greatest self promoter that ever lived. And he understood that when I showed up, there was a very good chance we were putting him on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I was usually there to do an SI cover. Uh, it was the same thing. I mean, he had the same relationship with Howard Cosell for exactly the same reason. He understood how Howard Cosell sold tickets for his fights. My covers sold tickets for his fights, you know, and uh, and, and of course, you know, uh, he he liked he he liked he liked people. He liked the press. He loved, like I say, he loved every camera, every microphone, every writer. He just enjoyed having around, even the ones who were critical of him. Dick Young never wrote a nice word about Ali. Ali was going to win him over. I I did not know Ali until pretty well after he was finished fighting. And yes, I had him I had him in the studio many times. Usually just me and him and my assistant and his little entourage that he'd bring along. I did the cover before the Manila fight of him and Joe Fraser and Don King. You know, you have two things you could do. Same by the way, when you get away from sports it's even harder. I once for Time magazine and it was a real thrill growing up in a low-income housing project, to be spending 10 minutes alone in the Oval Office with the President of the United States is something I never dreamed of. Well, I had 10 minutes with Ronald Reagan, myself, my assistant, and no one else, not a Secret Service agent, because I was doing a wide-angle shot that had to show the whole office. Well, you know, when I finished it and I got the picture was published, people kept asking me what Ronald Reagan was like. And I would always say... I had 10 minutes. I could have done one of two things. He didn't, on Ronald Reagan's schedule, it said Time Magazine photographer 1, 1 p.m. to 1.10 p.m. <laughs> Ronald Reagan, if I chose to chat him up on Notre Dame football for 10 minutes, he would have spoken to me for 10 minutes. If I, I I was there to do a job, so I didn't, I don't have a clue what Ronald Reagan was like. You know? I mean, I, I, I took my pictures. I took a picture when I was finished. My assistant took a picture of me with him. We shook hands, and I was ushered out of the Oval Office very quickly. Nicely, but very quickly. <laughs> you know, same thing with athletes. So when Ali showed up, I didn't know how long this session would be, although after a while I understood he never left until you were finished. I mean, Muhammad, like I said, he literally would say, all right, Neil, last time you took advantage of me. You got 20 minutes today. And literally, there were times when an hour and a half later, he was still, he was showing me his new sport jacket that he wanted to be photographed in. When I did the Man of the Year cover for Sports Illustrated, when he was uh, chosen Sportsman of the Year, I was the picture was always going to be him in black tie. It was meant to look like a GQ cover. And not a flamboyant, not one of those flamboyant just just a clean, conservative tuxedo. And I took him to Stewie, set up a studio in, in Chicago, and I brought Ali there. Well, he came with this big garment bag, and I took my pictures in the tuxedo first, even though he wanted to do other things first, but I, you get the cover first, just in case he decides he's had enough, uh, which he never did, but I, I, you're always going to be careful. When I finished with the tuxedo, he said, I got a couple of other things I think you'll like. And he takes out the two robes, Mabuto had given him, President Mabuto of Zaire, he wants to be photographed in his two African robes. Well, I could, I could hear the cash register clinking, you know, I know these are going to pictures. Oh, of course I photographed in his two robes. And then he's got his new suit he wants to be photographed in. Then he's got his walking stick that Mabuto had. He actually brought that out when I was in the tuxedo stage. All of which made great pictures. You know, 
so I did spend a lot of time around Ali, but we really got to know each other pretty much after he retired from boxing, and I became we became very good friends uh, just about the time he married Lonnie Ali. I mean, I'd i been to Ali's house before when when Ken Norton broke his jaw. He was a, he was living in Cherry Hill, New Jersey then, and I did a Sports Illustrated cover of him at home and just. Yeah, his jaw was wired. It was really funny. It was like a ventriloquist. You know, you couldn't talk. But I took pictures of him diapering his son, Muhammad Jr., for example, which he had no idea how to diaper a baby, but he knew it was going to be a good picture. He kept stabbing this kid with the, with the needle. You know, in those days, you had you had pins, diaper pins, you know, not the... Not the but I, I was feeling sorry for the kid, but I'm getting these great pictures. I, what, what do you do? As soon as as soon as I got the picture, Muhammad called his wife in to finish the diapering, you know. But I got to know him when he married Lonnie, and and then and I was out to the home in Berrien Springs a number of times. Over the next years, I took him to dinner in in New Orleans once. I took him to dinner in Louisville. I took not, in, in in Michigan. I I brought him to dinner in New York to a restaurant. It was really funny. He's the only person I've ever seen who you walk in a restaurant in a very conservative. A restaurant with a lot of celebrity types go all the time. It's not unusual. And people will see him come in. This is in the 90s. And, you know, he was already pretty pretty well uh, stricken. The Parkinson's had taken its effect. He walked poorly. But he was still walking and could talk. And you'd walk in and people would see him and they'd start clapping as he closed his tables to the door. And the more you got into the restaurant... I mean, I remember this was at Galatoire's in New Orleans on Bourbon Street. Well, I don't think they gave a hoot about any celebrities. Muhammad got a standing ovation. By the time we were halfway through the restaurant, the whole restaurant was on their feet clapping. I took him to this restaurant called Gabriel's in, uh, right in Columbus Circle in oh, New York. Oh, sure. It's a great restaurant. And, well, we walked in, and I've seen Oprah Winfrey there, Paul Newman there, all sorts of celebrities there, uh, half the half the. TV, so you know, uh, uh, I miss would go there all the time. People, you, you'd see people there that would attract attention, but nobody. I never saw anybody even go for an autograph. Muhammad walked in. I walked in with uh, Frank DeFord, my and his wife, and myself, and uh, and Ali and his wife, and we got ten feet into the restaurant. People started clapping, and then it was a standing ovation. So you know, I got to know him pretty well over the years, and. You know, I visited him and I visited him twice in uh, in Arizona when in the last few years of his life. I did a cover on him for Sports Illustrated on his 50th birthday. I did another cover on his 70th birthday for Sports Illustrated. So, you know, I got to know him very well. Yeah. But that was rare. I count on one hand the number of athletes that I have had social friendships. I, I got along with all of them. I mean, it's not that anything was wrong with any of them, but you just don't have the time. You don't build up that kind of friendship the way a writer might, because if a writer can get it, get the subject of his next piece out to dinner, you're going to get quotes, one, that no one else has, and two, you're going to have a good time. And we all had expense accounts. I could have taken any of these subjects to, to dinner, but you know, it just wasn't done with with photographers, with fair exceptions, but I, 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 like I say, after all the years of doing what I've done, I can count on one hand. Of all these subjects outside of sport, the only one I ever really got close to was Mayor Koch in New York. I put, I put Ed Koch on the cover of Sports uh, of Time magazine, and we became great friends. 
He liked to eat, and I liked to eat, so we used to go out to dinner. And I had a table of rails, and he loved going. <laughs> That's a good spot to have. Before Ali did retire and uh, leave boxing, I want to talk about one more match, and you alluded to it earlier, uh, against Foreman in Zaire. What was that like to cover an event of that magnitude, Neil? Well, you know, for starters, I mean, it was so exciting just going to a place that, quite frankly, no one ever heard of before because I grew up in geography that was the Belgian Congo. Mm-hmm. When they ended up in Zaire, I had ne- never heard of it. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. You know, it's interesting, I, and I'm going to change the subject slightly, if you don't mind, because I don't know how much time we have. But Zaire was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And Ali was, Ali was like the Pied Piper. He was, but don't, don't forget, he had to stay there for a long time because when Foreman got cut, he, uh, you, you know, they delayed the fight and Ali stayed in Zaire. But when he was training for the fight, he would walk out every day and take a walk. And kids, they were so respectful of him. The African, mainly the kids, would would see him walking, and suddenly there'd be two kids next to him, then there'd be four kids next to him, then there'd be twenty kids. It was like it was like the Pied Piper, you know. He would attract this crowd, but none of them had the nerve to speak to him. He would sometimes he would try to chat them up, but they were so in awe of this hero. hero. I mean, uh, heavyweight champion of the world, an African, a black, black American, America, you know, American. Uh, they were absolutely all, all of them. And uh, I, I followed him along. I have a wonderful picture of him walking along the river with the kids following him. But the fight that really, you know, Ali took, Ali took the New York press corps in particular and the boxing crowd. He took them all around the world. You know, when Rocky Marciano was fighting, when Joe Lewis was fighting, uh, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, I don't know if they ever fought outside the country. I'm probably wrong. I'm not, I should know that, but I don't believe they ever did. Muhammad Ali took the boxing press to Zaire. George Foreman took the press to Tokyo, uh, and Venezuela. But Ali took us to, to Manila and to Zaire and to London and, you know, and he just, and he fought all over the world and it was thrilling, but nothing comes close to the fight. And I photographed a lot of boxing because I, I did 35 of these fights, as I said, but I did a lot of other fighters. Well, 60 years of it. But nothing comes close. Nothing comes close to the excitement in, 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 uh, in Manila because nobody expected that kind of fight. Everyone thought that Fraser was pretty well past his prime. And Ali had been looking very, very good. He was older, but he was looking great. And everyone expected it to be just an easy fight for Ali. And it started out that way in about three, four rounds. I remember getting myself ready for the for the knockout because Sally was just beating the puff. And then suddenly things started turning around with the body punches that Ali. It, it's the greatest fight I ever saw. That's simple, and and it was wonderful. And then Don King, because he was so happy that I put him on the cover of Sports Illustrated with Fraser and Ali, he brought me. It was not open to the press, but he brought me to the palace for the dinner that uh, Ferdinand Marcos threw after the, after the fight. I, and, believe, uh, I believe that Ali, had, and I'm paraphrasing, but didn't he say that he almost felt like he died after that uh, or during yes. that match? 
Well, as I, I, we used to, we used to spread where I showed both their faces up close. There was the lead, lead spread in Sports Illustrated. It was the most incredible fight I've ever seen. I mean, uh, Fraser might have won the fight had they had it gone had the fifteenth round happened, but Eddie Futch did the right thing, stopping the fight. Fraser's eye, one of his eyes was completely closed, and the other one was getting close to that. And Futch didn't want he didn't want the guy to get hurt get blinded perhaps but i was at i sat at the dinner table with ferdinand marcos and emilio marcos and i photographed i photographed him with the two of them and they posed for me the three while he with marcos's and i sat at the dinner table that was a great thrill and you know my book by the way ends because what's happening now is boxing is again this great heavyweight division and the rematch i shot the first fight of ruiz and uh and and uh, Anthony Joshua at Madison Square Garden when, when Joshua lost the title. And then l- last December, a year ago, right now, a year ago this week, December 7th to be exact, uh, Ruiz and Joshua fought the rematch in Saudi Arabia. And I was there. And I was on the apron, ring, ring apron then, and Eddie Fachu promoted the fight, did something. I was really <laughs> totally unexpected. And I was so, it was so, so such a, nice thing to do because i'm the only photographer that's in the boxing hall of fame in Kenestota. and at the press conference before the fight eddie introduced me and he said we have one guy here who was on the apron in manila on the apron in zaire and now he's on the apron here in uh in saudi arabia so it's been it's been quite a run covering boxing i was gonna say that is a sport I would imagine. Is it your favorite that you've covered? Do you have one yes. ranked over the it, other? I well, you know, first off, I always like to tell when I'm asked why boxing. They're the nicest people. It's generalization. You're always going to find somebody that's that's an asshole, or I mean, no matter what group you have, you, you look at. But here are poor. Many of them coming from backgrounds in crime. Some of them there have always been fighters that sort of learned to box in prison or whatever, or grew up in the worst possible conditions to to succeed from, you know, to grow up grow up they grew up poor. And and I found I've always found the boxing crowd to be the nicest people. You can't find characters like Muhammad Ali and Joe Fraser and George Foreman and uh you can go right Oscar De La Hoya and uh Mike Tyson. I love Mike Tyson. I mean Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, all these the fighters and today uh uh Deontay Wilder and, and Tyson Fury and Anthony they're just wonderful overall and most of most of most of the promoters I felt the same way. You're not gonna meet very many people like Angelo Dundee uh in covering. They were just always very pleasant to work with. I'm not suggesting they're all angels. I'm just saying they were very pleasant to be around and to work with, far more so than let's say uh some of the other sports uh athletes are. And uh, I loved covering NFL football. I never got very close to any of the players by choice. But, you know, other than, like I said, unless I had them in the studio to do a cover. But my favorite two sports in terms of the people were boxing are the nicest group. And believe it or not, and very hard sport to photograph. And I, I, did, I did a lot of it. But uh, it, it certainly wasn't my favorite to photograph. But I love hockey players I worked with, the NHL hockey players. They were just like boxers. Most of these kids grew up in Canada in the days I was doing it. The NHL was, I think, at one point, 100% Canadian. 
including, of course, the American teams in Boston, New York, Chicago, Detroit. They were all players were all Canadian, and half of them never finished high school. But they were just such nice guys. Drank a lot of beer. I remember that. <laughs> it's not a bad trait to have. Well, I, of- I, I, I did a cover on this on one of the Chicago. Uh, Stan Mikita and his line, the three people that were leading scorers in the NHL. And I brought a lot of beer to the studio. They were coming to the studio to pose for me before they were in New York for a Ranger game. And I brought extra beer. Well, we ran out in the first half hour or 45 minutes. We were out of beer. And I had to send out to get some more, I remember. So, but they were just such nice guys. And uh, like I say, so I like that. The boxing crowd. Overall, here's this rough sport where you think you're going to be around uh, around teamster truck drivers, or at least the dialogue is going to be like construction workers or teamsters would be. Uh, you bring a lady into the dressing room at a at a of a fighter, and suddenly they're yes ma'am, hi ma'am, no sexual. They're, they're not hitting on her they're in the locker room, and I couldn't say the same as so for baseball or basketball. Or, you know, you get a totally different feeling. I think. That, now, again, that's a generalization. I met some really wonderful baseball players and some wonderful basketball players, some of whom I, I enjoyed getting to know a little bit. But boxers were really my favorite and still are. Walter Yost was one of your Sports Illustrated colleagues, Neil. What was that working relationship like? Um, being alongside him for many years of both your careers at Sports Illustrated? Well, for starters, I introduced Walter to Sports Illustrated. His father, I met him, Walter and his father, at a Titans game at Yankee at, at the Polo Grounds. Walter wanted to show his portfolio to Sports Illustrated, and I agreed to meet with him. I met him in the lobby at the time, like building, and introduced him to the picture editor's and Walter was just a terrific photographer right from the beginning. And my relationship with him is very simple. One, we're great friends to this day. We were incredible competitors. I mean, I wanted to kick his butt every every week, and he wanted to kick mine. But I had so much respect for his ability that you know, I never I never took it for granted that I would. If the two of us went out to get a cover on a week we were shooting for the cover of the magazine, and we often did the same game, I never took it for granted that I was going to get that cover because half the time I didn't. Uh, but Walter would say the same thing about me. I, I guarantee you, if you ask Walter, I was a much, much better photographer because Walter was my competition. And he was a much better photographer, I guarantee you, because I was his competition. So it's kind of healthy, you know, to have to have someone who you, you – when we went to a game, we did a lot of football together, a whole lot of football. They'd send, you know, one guy would be on the, on the, on the home team sideline, the other guy would be on the visiting team sideline. And I just knew how good Walter was. I knew he wasn't going to miss. He was a great football photographer. Same thing with we're at the World Series. Or, uh, yeah. I mean, Walter went to the Kentucky Derby once, which was one of my sports. I did 17 derbies. Walter went to his only horse race in his life and got the cover of the magazine. And there were three or four, four of us shooting. There were really good racing photographers. He was just good. He still is. He's still, Walter's still shooting, and he's a fabulous photographer. And he's a great guy which doesn't mean he wasn't every bit as competitive as I was, because both of us were. <laughs> Over the years, right? 
What do you, what do you think about sports photography now, Neil? With not only it's long since changed from film to digital, but do you think it's as um, I don't know, seductive as it was back during that stretch of time when you covered all these great events and um, sports athletes were held in such high regard like Ali or Sandy Koufax. Um, What is it like for you to look at sports photography now? Well, you know, there is still some, listen, for starters, I'm a great believer that it's, it's still a photographer, not the uh, not the camera, not the digital camera. And yes, they are very good. And they they're, they give you a, a much bigger edge than we had. But it's always interested me that the best photographers are still shooting the best pictures. There's a guy named Al Bellow at Getty in, partic- in particular, who's a terrific boxing photographer and a good friend of mine. Al Bellow has been shooting pictures he's probably been shooting for 25 maybe 30 years he's he's in his 50s i think and al bella was terrific sports photographer before the digital revolution the digital cameras came in he is still a great photographer he's still a photographer it is easier today the lenses the camera systems uh the two things that i worried about every time i went out no matter how good you no matter how technically proficient you were you worried about getting the picture in focus because you had to focus the cameras. Today's autofocus does that for you, and it does it very, very well. You worried, and then you worried about the exposure, because the latitude in film was fairly narrow. If you were half a stop underexposed or overexposed, often they wouldn't pick your picture because it was not going to reproduce well. You know, uh, if it was if it was a knockout punch, they had to reproduce it, but you couldn't. Today with digital, the latitude is so much greater. You can be underexposed or overexposed, and by the time you see the picture in print in the newspaper or in the magazine, you'd never know it. But, I, you know, I, I think there's some great photographers out there it's what's sad is is it's so hard to do anything different because everything is sort of and i'm not i'm not one of those people who says television is doing the wrong thing because i love watching sports on television they are so good i mean my picture of uh of flavor williams that we were talking about from overhead i mean Look at any fight, any fight on television today. They have three cameras over the ring, and they have zoom lenses, and they can they can come in, they can pan with it, they can do. You know, it's very hard to do something better than the coverage television is giving. The visual coverage I'm talking about, the television is giving these events. So the sports photographer has not only has the competition of his fellow sports photographers or her fellow sports photographers, because there are a whole lot of very, very good women shooting these days. When I was shooting, you never saw a woman on the sidelines of an NFL game. You certainly never saw one ringside at a fight. There are half a dozen just fabulous ladies shooting pictures these days. And, I, you know, I follow. I'm a credit reader, as I said, so I watch it. So there are, yeah, there are terrific photographers out there. What's sad is there's no longer a Life magazine or a Look magazine or a Sports Illustrated to show. There is Sports Illustrated, but it's not a weekly, it's not a news magazine anymore to show off their work. And it, that saddens me because I grew up loving that kind of stuff. But well, All the more reason to not only take a look back at all of your work over the many decades, Neil, but especially in this latest uh, book, Boxing, 60 Years of Fights and Fighters. Incredible images throughout and 
obviously would make a wonderful holiday gift, wink, wink. Um, and as you pointed uh-huh. out, Neil, uh, within a year, there will be a trade paperback um, version. Uh, and paperback. Print edition, a hardcover issue, and they're beautiful. They're just, they're just a tiny bit smaller. You know, they're a little bit they're not signed numbered edition. It's an open edition. No, the I I love that the I mean I have trade editions of both my football and baseball book as well as I have the limited edition as well, obviously. But they're beautiful books. I mean Tashin there is no better publisher of coffee table books in the world today than Tashin and and they don't do sports as I said, so this stuff is pretty special. I will say and I, I know I'm going to sound like a book salesman, but believe me, I'm not. This book is going to sell out whether I push it or not. It's a limited edition of a thousand copies, uh, and it will sell out. I don't have any doubt. This book is beyond anything I ever dreamed of in my whole career. I always dreamed about having a, you know, beautiful book published, and I this is my 18th book, so I've certainly been very lucky. I've had many books published. Nothing comes close to this. And quite frankly, when we started the Boxing Book Project, I never expected it to be what it is. Benedict Toshin is a boxing fan, and he personally edited this book, which he doesn't do very, you know, when you look at the credits, it says directed and produced by Benedict Toshin. You will not see that in 90% of his books, because he, he'll do this work when he did Helmut Newton's book, or, you know, certainly when he did Goat, he did it, but rarely does he personally, he oversees everything. Nothing, no book gets published by Tashin that Benedict hasn't signed off on, but he isn't involved in putting it together. And this book, he's been involved from day one. Well, when do you, when do you see it? You know, you will, you will be, you'll be surprised because I was, I was, I was, I just got my first, the advanced copy of the book yesterday. Literally, I couldn't wait to open the box. Uh, and I will tell you, I was surprised. And I've, I've been working with the author. I mean, I knew. I knew what those spreads are going to look like. I knew. I just, I didn't believe it was going to look this good. And it, it's fabulous. So, well, if, we it is, if it is the final book of your incredible career, it's a wonderful bookend. But myself and I'm sure many others hope that maybe there's more out there for uh, the rest of your work. Going I already have a contract to do another book with Tashin, which I'm going to be doing, I hope. Okay. So I won't tell you another sports book, and I'll leave it right there. No, and I'm not planning on I'm going anywhere. I expect to do a lot. more. more I, I make films these days, and what I want to do is I want to do a documentary, which I'm trying to get a six-part, six one-hour shows from the boxing book. Because the boxing book is, the way the boxing book is laid out, it is chronological by decades. So it's uh, 50, well, 50, I only have one fight. It's the fight in 1959 uh, at Yankee Stadium, which, Ali, which is Patterson Johansson won. But then I, it's going to be the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, and 2010s. So each each show it will be six one-hour it could be 90 minutes, but I think it'll be six one-hour shows on boxing. And I produce and direct documentaries, and I've done some other films. And that's my hope. To, that's what I'm hoping to do next. But I'm definitely going to be doing at least one more book with Tashin. I hope that Benedict will be happy enough with the way this book does that we'll do many more. I mean, I've got a number of ideas for books, and I have the pictures to do it, you know, and uh, I want to do them. So we'll see. 
That's great. Well, look forward to all of those uh, future projects. And I think that's wonderful that there's another platform, i.e. documentary or uh, TV to showcase your work. So that's wonderful to hear. Well, Neil, it's wonderful to talk with you. Such an incredible career and you're incredibly uh, generous with your time. Thanks. Take care. Absolutely. And stay safe. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Stories with Street Cred. I'm your host, Christian Redd.